Well, good evening, all. Uh, welcome uh, to those of you who are not normally here 24 hours a day, or at least not 24 hours a day, many hours a day. Welcome to the uh, LSE. For those of you here for the, uh, those hours, uh, welcome here this evening. Um, I'm Tony Travers from the Government Department here at the LSE, and I'm uh, here this evening to chair uh, this event, which is uh, to celebrate and to talk about the publication of this book, this is London, Life and Death in the World City by Ben Judah, who's standing uh, here next to me and from whom you'll hear in a moment. Uh, Ben was born in London, has travelled extensively in Russia, Central Asia and the Levant and has written about these subjects as effectively a journalist in these places in a way that an investigative overseas correspondent might and has now effectively applied these kind of skills and this approach to London, his home city, which I think is a very interesting idea and gives us a a sense of the feel for a city that's changed so radically and about which there is an established story, you know, um, moving from a London in decline in the 60s and 70s to a remarkably successful place economically uh, from the late 1980s onwards and over this time and particularly since the mid-1990s a city that has come to and it's incredible that one can even say this and the book is definitely uh, examining this issue a city which has in a sense more in common with a place like New York or Toronto as a developed city that's radically been altered by mass migration from a whole range of different countries uh, than, in a sense, the the, the London of the 1940s or the 1950s. A remarkable transformation in a very, very rapid period. There are lots of books about this, but this one takes a very different approach. And I'm going to leave its author, Ben, to say something about it. Then he and I will talk for a few minutes, and then you can ask questions and have an argument with him or me or both. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for that really kind introduction, and thank you all for coming. It's really, it's really great to see so many people here. Let me tell you a little bit about this book, and a little bit about why I chose to write it. I used to work as a foreign correspondent. I worked in Russia. I was covering the huge story that's happening there in Eastern Europe. And when I was working there, I realised that the foreign correspondent is a, a form of writing. It's a literary style. And it's a literary style that I particularly love because it gives a, a voice to the poor. You often go out into the provinces, into the, into the mountains, into the front line and talk to normal people and bring them their voices into the piece. And it can also unveil the rich. When I came back to London after reporting in Russia, mostly for several years, I, I realised, just flicking through the news about London and about the UK in general, was that those voices weren't as much in the mix as I would like them to be. Is that reading about London in particular, you were getting a lot of comments, you were getting a lot of stats, and you were getting a lot of property adverts. And that the real transformation that I was seeing all around me wasn't wasn't really being told. I was born in London, and when I came... When I came back, mostly from Russia, I realised I didn't really recognise this city. I didn't really have a handle on it. I used to be able, when I was younger, to be on the tube 
And I felt I really knew who everybody was. I knew what was in their minds. I was, could sort of try and second guess what their, their politics would be, where they would go out, where they would, where they would drink. But being on the tube, especially in the early morning, coming in from outer London into inner London, I realised that it was very difficult to say, if you were born in London, that you really knew what was in the minds, what was in the souls, what people were praying for or questing for, for all of the new Londoners. London is not the city of EastEnders. It's not the city of these old fossilised myths. I don't see, and I don't think any of us see, the city of Dickens. And being on the tube in the early morning, I got this desire to write this foreign correspondence book about London, to really discover where was this, where is, what is this strange, fascinating, beautiful, frightening, little travelled, little understood, new country, new city that is London today. Why is it new? In today's London, nearly 40% are born abroad, and the overwhelming majority are either immigrants, their children, or like me, their grandchildren. And this story of arrival has made this, really transform London uh, from the city it was before. It's, it's common, and of course it's great to say, that there were always migrants uh, in London, going back to the, the Middle Ages. But as a percentage, even if they had huge influence culturally, they, it was rather small. And that London, before the Second World War, was very much was a place where less than 5% were born abroad. To do, this, to do this book, I decided I wanted to write a little bit against the spirit of journalism of the time. Not make it about, not make it about me, not make it about my opinions, not censor people, not try, and sort of, not try and censor people, not say that the statistic is the most important thing. So I decided to live it. In order to really understand what does it mean to... What does it, the New London mean? I slept rough with... Roma beggars under High Park Corner. I worked on Polish building sites, commuting in from the edge of the city right into the middle. I slept in uh, Romanian DOS houses where people sleep two to a bed. And I tried to write about how people really experience London today. Working as a foreign correspondent, I had this rather absurd experience of travelling up and down Russia, asking everybody, what do you think of Vladimir Putin? And doing that, I realised... Everybody I'm speaking to isn't experiencing his life uniquely politically. People I was meeting, they were all in different phases of their life. They were people in love. They were people who were depressed. They were people who were struggling with raising children. They were people who were old. They were people who were feeling themselves going into, the, going into death. They were people who were traumatised or had been given huge spark by certain events. And I decided to write this book about London following the, the arc of life. The book begins in High Park Corner with Roma who've tumbled off the bus, trying to begin a new life here. Why? Because immigration's a bit like birth. It's the choice of a new life. And it follows that whole arc of different people going through different phases because London looks very, very different if you're young, if you're extremely old, if you're struggling in a, a terrible job. It feels very different if you've made it. And I wanted to get a kind of journalism that really reflects that, really reflects that. All the way along the arc of life, you have the different people that I think tell stories that really make up this new city. These are the stories of the Roma beggars. 
It's the stories of African night cleaners and tube pickers. It's the story of stories of Polish building kings. It's the stories of Afghan shopkeepers. It's the stories of the princesses and the princelings of Knightsbridge and Mayfair. And it's the story, it's the story of teachers coming from, their, coming from Africa, or a- Africa or Asia raising children. And it's the story, it's a story that surprised me because the book is mostly their words. It's what they think. It's what they think about each other. It's what they think about, what they think about me, uh, me and the other English. It's what they think about their jobs. And I, there were a lot of surprises in doing this. The first big surprise for me was how spiritual London is as a city. It's very hard if you only see the world from what are the real ghettos of Kensington and Chiswick and Hampstead to realise that London's a city of African churches and basement mosques, of intense prayer uh, and hope in that other London that this book is about, but doesn't, re- doesn't get its voice in the newspapers as much. It was a huge surprise to me to see a lot of the tensions and a lot of the tensions and the beefs and the troubles that were in in this in this whole mix, the the resentments of different groups, the resentments of different groups of one another, everybody looking down, everybody looking down on each other. I saw a lot that frightened me. I the main thing I think that frightened me was living that inequality and following it, especially with uh, construction workers in the morning, people waking up two to a bed in Dickensian poverty, shuttling in on commutes of over an hour and a half, in old, in, shuttling in on commutes of over an hour and a half to come and work in the centre cent- of the city, to, to sort of repaint and rebuild these resplendent mansions and resplendent palaces, and knowing exactly at every moment how little they were paid, but also how much their, their work was worth. One of the, coming through that journey, I also saw a lot that really moved me and made me, real, made me feel quietly confident despite a lot of these uh, terrible things about London today. And that was the quite funny story about, and perhaps surprising story looking from the 1950s, was that how the British capital became, for its inhabitants today, one of the sexiest places in the world. In the villages of Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe, London glows, stirring up dreams. One of those, the first of those dreams, is the promise of a city where you can come and you can transform. In the valleys of Afghanistan or in the slums of Ghana, if you're born in a position, you know that you can't change. Only if you can get to London or get to the great glowing cities of the developed world, is there a promise, however slim, that if you start as a tube cleaner, you could, you could end up something completely, you could end up something completely different than your children could be. The other London dream is that London really is a city where you can go to bed with and marry whoever you want. And for people coming from Eastern Europe, Africa and Asia, the immense thrill of that, the beauty of that, is very hard to understate. One of the secret ingredients, I think, of London today is the amazing promise of mix. And London's becoming and transforming the human, its human genome at an amazing pace. 
By the end of the book, I realised that if you look around you and you look at all the different people on, on the tube being unsure of who they are, you should get to know who they are. It matters to you who the Afghan shopkeeper is and where he's coming from and what he thinks. It matters to know who the uh, Polish building king is and what his story and his thoughts are because if you intend to live in London and have children or grandchildren in London, he, he or she most likely is going to be as much the story of your grandchildren as you are. And that by hopefully reading this book and sort of uh, listening to all this, these voices we'll get a glimpse into our own futures, which I'm pretty sure in London is a future of fusion. Very good. I'm sorry, I was writing myself a note to... Right. Do you want to stay there? Why do you stay there? What we'll do now... Yeah. What we'll do now is... Uh, I'm going to just open the questioning with one or two of my... What's what I was writing down at that moment. What of all the things that you discovered in this sort of remarkable um, Orwell style, even the, the touch of Dickens and Orwell, moving around the city. I mean, what, what most surprised you? Clearly there's a sense of generic surprise in returning to London and seeing this city changed, and it has changed without question. What most of all the things you saw most surprised you to the sense of nearly disturbing you? I think it's the squalor that is so close that keeps that we don't see. Yep. It really unnerved me to realise how a lot of the construction industry works. And that all over North London and South London, you'll find dozens of uh, black market labour exchanges where there will be guys, from, mostly from Eastern Europe, standing on the curb just hoping for work. And when work comes, it will be a white van going past, and then people will just have to tout, they have to haggle. And I went out and stood on the curb and tried to get work and got work. And there's no minimum wage there because we don't have minimum wage enforcement. It's, a very, it's very little done. And to see that reality, I found very unnerving. And I was alarmed at overcrowding and how one of the stories in London that, that you've written about is how London's turning inside out and that the old... Immigrant London used to be in the sort of vaguely in the belt of Zone 2. And as richer migrants, one could say, from Russia or France or uh, the, the Gulf buy up Zone 1, the wealthy British are being displaced into Zone 2, pushing out uh, those migrant communities, and meaning that arrival now happens at the edges. And a lot of this book is about outer London. Most of London is outer London. And in the whole belts of outer London, these places such as Neasdown or Edmonton or Barking have really transformed. Demographically, they've transformed utterly in the last 15 years. And that's where immigrant London now is. Anybody who's lamenting what's happened to, to Brixton or thinks that there's, there's no, more, no more of this in, in London now, you need to get on the tube and go to the end of it and then get the bus and you'll see where immigrant London now, now is. And where going through these, these, these boroughs and sort of meeting people there and having them guide me around, it was a, a surprise to see that behind the pebble dash and the gabled fronts, this is where poverty now accumulates uh, out of sight. One thing that I think we need to sort of think about in terms of the future of London is, for example, when my family arrived in London in the, uh, just in the 
around the 30s and 40s, they arrived in a, they arrived in a city with a, a very strong sense of what it was about, also with a dominant majority. And I kept on thinking in Eastern European DOS houses, if I had arrived here now, what exactly would my experience of integration be over the generations? And do you think that, I mean, the, the expectation of almost all social, social changes now that it will happen quicker. So if you look at migrant groups, and there were, as you say, there were migrant groups even in the, well, right back through London's history, but certainly in the late 19th century and then in the latter part of, or just after the war. And the time it took those groups to integrate was significantly longer than I think any of us would expect it to happen today. To wit, our expectations of the way people are treated, um, Equal, you know, our expectations that people be treated equally and have an equal chance in schools and other institutions means that the whole process is to some degree speeded up, question mark, i.e., you know, you'd expect a new community that arrived here 15 years ago by now to be showing real progress. And in some ways, their children definitely do. And one of the most remarkable changes about modern London is that schools have been radically altered by this immigration, or well, at least the children of the people who've arrived have. So I, I suppose I'm, I, I'm supposed to getting, trying to get some signals, a clue from you, how you feel the, how we do a, hardly dare say this, a sort of cost-benefit analysis that's putting it a bit instrumentally for all of this, because you've looked at some of the often unconsidered costs, particularly to the individuals, but both to them and the city, there are benefits. How would you go about I'm not, weighing I'm not a politician. I'm not here to no, say no, anything apart that. from the book. I know that. And it's... It, this, the, this book is full of the New Londoners' opinions. My opinion uh, is not, very, it's not the most interesting thing. And on this issue of children, one of the themes that comes up a lot in, in Migrant London is the unease at which your children become English. And in Polish London, lots of, uh, lots of guys on construction sites would talk to me about this, this sense that their child had started going to school, the child was, was different from them, and was different from them in lots of ways that they appreciated, but also they were nervous about it. They were unsure what that meant and where that would go. Lots of guys told me that they became English through their kids and that having to understand their kids meant that they had to understand lots of things about Britain. Others lamented to me that they felt that their kids were... Uh, they felt their kids weren't, they couldn't communicate with them anymore, or they were acquiring some of the qualities they looked down on, on the English or on the, on the British. Another story I found very uncomfortable and was in African London, I was repeatedly told that the ease of which Eastern Europeans assimilated and felt they were British and English so quickly said something about, uh, uh, said something about implicit racial hierarchies in London or racial racial borders, and that was a theme that uh, the people I meet and talk to in the book keep on bringing up. Okay, enough from me. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions and comments. Um, right, who'd like to... Right, good, very good. There's a, a, a microphone will come to you if you wish to. Say roughly who you are, but don't feel you've got to. Yeah, hi, I'm Alejandro. I'm from Mexico, and uh, I got a question about if you have some ideas on how is technology helping or shaping um, the sense of London? How technology. How technology is it changing? Okay. And even if I could go a little bit further, okay, like if you think the Bitcoin. Yeah. Thank you. 
Okay, and take the second question there. We'll just be efficient, take two together. Thank you. My name is Ines, and congratulations on the book. You basically you. wrote the book that I wanted to write once I'm oh. done with the PhD here. <laughs> but um, thank you for having taken care of that already. Uh, I don't think so. Um, very much looking forward to reading it. Um, however, my question concerns your observation that London is actually, you, you were saying, you know, there's a fusion happening, but then the stories you were mentioning seem to be very isolated cases, or seem to be cases of people who are actually, you know, not finding their way into the broader scheme. You know, the, you were mentioning the construction worker who you know, is building the mansion, but he's never going to live in that mansion. You know, so how do you reconcile those two, I guess? Sure. Thanks. Um, let's, talk about, let's talk about that. All of the people in this arc of life, some of whom have really triumphed on their own terms, registrars, policemen, and for people who are born abroad and come with nothing, come with you know, a couple of notes in their, their pocket, these are huge triumphs, and those are the stories of the book. All of them, the young or the old, one of the stories of this book is people trying to build a home. And they are struggling to do so, all in their own ways, they feel that is slipping away from them. And this comes back to the huge story of London today, which is speculation on property and on property prices and how that is undermining people being able to, to, to feel that they have built a real and durable home in London. With recent waves of immigration, African, uh, from the Philippines, from Eastern Europe, there's a sense of resentment at the previous wave of immigration from Ugandan Asians, uh, Jews, who arrived at a time in which if you brought the shop front, it wasn't very expensive to then buy the flat on top and then feel yourself in the property-owning democracy as a full Londoner. And people kept on telling me that they never felt that they were going to be able to, to build that home in London. Was, were they ever going to be able to, to stay here or just be spun out of it? That was a, a real sense of unease. Something that I came away worrying about is that link between the sense of ownership, and it is just a sense because the bank owns it for most people, and... Uh, integration or integration of new waves of, of immigrants into, into London and the rest of the UK. So that's something that uh, I don't have an answer to. I, I don't have an answer to, and the people that I spent so much time with my book are really worried about. On technology, I mean, again, this is one of the really interesting jumps between the old immigrant London of Whitechapel and the new immigrant London that's that is everywhere in London, apart from a few, uh, a few isolated areas, is we live digitally as much as we live in, in real life. And if you, in everyone's phone in this city, if they were born abroad, in everyone's TV set, they're still where they came from, in a sense. They're still connecting and talking. On a Polish building site, the Polish radio and Polish music plays all day. For Polish guys, or Romanian guys, or Latvian guys, or Russian-speaking uh, Russian guys from the Baltic who are mostly working there, they'll listen to that and they'll go home in the evening, hang out on the computer, chat some friends. So there's a different, that's a different experience of, uh, a different experience of being in London than you would have got in the 30s uh, 
30s and the 40s. And one of the fascinating things about religious communities in this, in this city, be they Muslim or Jewish or Sikh, is that TV and the internet and online newspapers have made these always imaginary communities a lot more real. And I sense in London a very, very fragmented mediascape and a very fragmented conversation. And I think that's something that we need to, that's something that we need to think about. And all of the people I had a chance to, to meet, uh, hundreds of people on this, uh, on this journey through London, often knew very little about the people who they saw every day or brushed up against or worked alongside, worked alongside if they were from different groups. And that's something I think that's quite unnerving for the long run. And that's why I think we need more journalism about London and more journalism that people can read and less property adverts. <laughs> we get them in parallel, I suspect, at best. Right, chap in the middle here. And anybody up there, don't forget, I, if, if I don't look up for a moment and you want to say something, just shout as well as waving up there. Yeah, can you wait for the microphone just so everybody can hear you up there? Hi. Um, I know it kind of seems deliberate that you didn't want to do a book about policy and trends and sure. things like that, but there is a London mayoral election coming up, and I was wondering what your reflection was personally from your experiences on what you're looking for in terms of policy or what lessons you might draw from it. But equally, I'd be interested to know if you talked about politics when you were with people and what their view of, of what needs to happen in London is. Okay, let's take a second. Just take a second. If there is a second one, trying to do it efficiently. Yep, and just in front of you, which is very efficient indeed again. Oh, right. It's microphone, sorry. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. I wonder, have you, did you come to any conclusion as to the beneficiaries and um, who, 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 who gets hurt? Um, my own feeling is that long term, it's in the national interest to have immigration. Um, um, obviously, the, the large builders, I mean, the large um, uh, firms benefit from the, 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 lower, the, the wages aspect of it. But, and then, then on the downside, you have the, the, the influx into the schools and hospitals. So do you, do you, have, do you have any uh, personal opinions about this? Just on that issue of who benefits and who... Who benefits and, and who, who gets hurt and what the national interest is. I, I set out to do this book about how people actually live and how what people think as they live and what's going through their heads and not to censor it and to bring it out. And people don't think of the national interest. The people in this book, the, the tube cleaners, the workers, the, the professionals, the super rich, they're not thinking of the national interest. That's something that a very small group of people do. And I think it's often frightening to people in the sort of world of policy and, uh, and journalism to, to realise uh, to, to that. For the working poor in London, London is a city of the working poor. One of the things that really struck me is that, how to be, is that to be poor in London today is to be tired, it's to be exhausted. It's often working two jobs, it's really physically tough. And that our old image of poverty as sort of physical ailments and hunger, that's still there. It's quite small, but it's still there. It's been replaced by the psychological costs of, of, of exhaustion. And that in that, that world, all the people who are on this little screen uh, in front of me, are, 
they are so far away. They are so abstract. In the new London, a lot of the institutions of the left and the institutions of the right are very distant. The culture of the trade unions and feels extremely far away. The culture of Islington politics and Kensington politics is very far away. It doesn't touch people. And there's a sense that there is a sense that it's not aimed and targeted at them. It's aimed and targeted at the very narrow band of people who are white British or are homeowners. And looking at the mayoral election campaign so far, I, I agree with them actually. I think that that is what, how the election campaign is, is being fought. And I don't see a lot of conversations about a lot of the, the things I saw that I was really shocked by in London. One, for example, was the return of street prostitution. And that uh, there are dozens of streets in London now where you have uh, these old scenes from the 19th century replaying on an evening, on an evening basis. If you go to to Ilford, or if you go to, to Edmonton, people are really concerned, really worried about that, and are struggling to deal with it. You have this interlocking of different gangs with uh, power bases back in Romania or in, or in Pakistan. I don't see people trying to engage with a lot of those really frightening, uh, a lot of those really frightening issues, all these bigger issues of how people are going to be able to build solid and stable homes in, in London in the, fu- in the future. I see pictures of Sadiq Khan like with a pollution monitor in, in Putney or pictures of Zach Goldsmith planting a tree. It's... But isn't the... I mean, the, <clears throat> the challenge, presumably, for... I mean, you, you're, in a sense, you're providing a voice in the book. You're providing a voice for people who are, if not dispossessed, are less likely to get the attention of mainstream politics, even than lots of other groups in society who are quite cut off from mainstream politics. So the the issue, to flip it round, is how would groups of this kind, people you spoke to, I mean, given, you know, I'm not asking for a policy solution here, but what would it be realistic for a mayoral candidate to think about the group, other than read your book, obviously, uh, in order to think what the the mayor and the boroughs together needed to do to begin to sort out some of the problems. For example, you know, should there be, and some boroughs are doing this now, more aggressive, a more aggressive policy on bad landlords? Would that, make, would that make, just make it worse because there'd be fewer homes or better because the homes there were would be better? I think we have a really artificial political conversation in this country. That's probably, right. Go on. I think we have a really artificial political conversation in this country. There's taboos and censors and a sense of what can and can't be discussed and a lot of wooden left-wing and right-wing language. And I think people are often frightened to express what they're frightened about, they're really frightened about in London, or what they're really proud of. Lots of people told me on the course of this journey, lots of people in this book, are are really frightened that London is uh, a racial hierarchy and that on all these levels of low pay until you become middle class or upper middle class, where race no longer matters, as I was told repeatedly, there is an eerie, an eerie level of work. African tube cleaners, Polish builders, and there's this hierarchy there. 
That's something we don't talk about. And that's something that low-paid London is really worried about. And low-paid London sees really visibly. Many of the, un- uh, the most uncomfortable conversations I had with people were African women who clean offices at night going, why do only the Eastern European girls get to clean homes in posh London? Oh, that's because they don't want black people touching their stuff. We know that. One of the uncomfortable conversations I had in the kitchens that I spent time with the people who worked there was, why is it always the Ghanaian who's scrubbing the pot? Why, does the, why is it always the Lithuanian who's putting the food on the table? Is that because they don't like us holding it? People's experience of fear and racism and is a, is a lot more acute. Various politicians, I think, have conspired in this, this image of this image of London as a multicultural paradise uh, because it, it tells a positive story in a country that's still troubled by the financial crisis. It sells a positive story abroad. It's, one of, it's the great continuity between Blair and Cameron and Boris Johnson. <laughs> and I think that I think we would, it would do a lot of good to kind of look, to try and hear and listen to all these voices from below. Okay. And right. from above, from okay. the super rich as well. But one here, gentleman here. Oh, and there's now several hands. Excellent. So take gentleman here and the woman there to start with. They're close together. Hand it back. I'm Italian. I'm curious um, to know if London is original in respect to the rest of the UK and in what of it has the same problem as the rest of the UK. Does London have the same problem as the rest of the UK? Uh, it, yes. Is original or not? Or is it the same problems, uh, mut- immigrants, uh, um, criminals, uh, or um, good things as the rest of the UK? What's the difference between London and the rest of the UK? Would it be For the same me, with uh, Manchester? foreign people. Sure. Okay. And then the woman behind. I love what you said about uh, future of fusion. I was just wondering, um, in your exploration, if you found that there were certain groups or perhaps certain generations that were more open to that future of fusion and integration than others. Okay, do all those two, yeah. Fusion and other cities, why not deal with those two? Well, one of the really interesting stories about race and ethnicity in, in London over the last 50 years was that how religion turned out to be more more divisive than race, which was completely contrary to people's expectations uh, 40 or 50 years ago. And I think that uh, on, through this book, the voices that I heard, people were alarmed by a sense of uh, religious conflict, uh, a religious conflict, a religious tension uh, in the air. People, people were often asking about that, expressing their views on that, that a lot of them, a lot of them, what you'll find in this, uh, find in this book, which are kind of phobic or, or, or racist. In, I think the great churn of, I think the great churn of, uh, of London will slowly integrate, uh, uh, slowly integrate different, uh, different groups because it will take a very, very long time. But it's simply because of the patterns in which people have sex in London. Which will, uh, which will influence that. 
And what about other cities? I mean, I know the book's about London, but presumably is the scale clearly different? Well, it's... I'm just kind of phrasing it as a problem. Right, London's been utterly transformed by immigration, for the better, for the worse. It's just a, it's just a thing. It's just a force that's, that's shaping the city. I wouldn't frame it, I wouldn't frame it in, in that way. If you look at the projections for the demographic future of the, the UK, one estimate by Policy Exchange puts around 40% of the population by mid-century being of uh, non-white or, or mixed, uh, mixed heritage. And that statistic alone hints that the future of London, for good and for ill, is the future of the UK. Over the next 10 or 15 years, the major cities will flip to look like London, which is why it's so important that we understand what London is and we understand how it works, what its true fears, what its true successes are. Okay. And right, now, woman there, man there. Okay, uh, right in the middle here. Hold on, wait for the uh, microphone so we can hear you. Thanks. Anybody up in the gallery I'm missing? Keep your hands up. Here. Yep, go on. Hi, um, Rebecca, immigrant from Estonia. Um, how much did these people um, trying to understand what was the purpose of this book or your research? And do you think that they understood it as a certain, maybe a, a helping hand to become a bit closer to these issues that you addressed that were very distant? Well, people were fascinated by the idea of the project because they kept on telling me there was so much of London they didn't understand and so much of London that they were fascinated by or, or alienated by. They kept on asking me what I'd heard. What do other people really think? What do other people really say? You know, what's actually going on in all these places that I see on the tube map and I know so little about and that my... I've only got a few clichés to hang off the tube station names. Uh, when you interview people, and, and I'm a journalist, I'm not, I'm not here to, to say tick this box, tick that box, vote for this mayoral candidate, vote for that mayoral candidate. When you interview people, you get a lot of very different experiences. One of the... Often you get people who have, they have waited their whole lives for a journalist to come and, and ask them the questions, the big questions about London or the big questions about their lives in the future. And they talk to you a bit like power, a bit like the state or the establishment that's come down, I've got this to say, I've been angry about this since Tony Blair. That's one experience you get of being a journalist. Another experience you get is... Another experience you get is people, especially poorer people, who have never had that experience of being sat down and asked to just describe the arc of their their life and it's, it can be truly exhilarating or uncomfortable to watch people piece their lives together in front of you and that's the experience you'll get reading these chapters, you'll see people, people doing that and coming to terms or you know, feeling a sense of elation at where they've come often you, you come to interview someone and you're the stranger on the train they, they start confessing things I've had interviews one of the interviews, one of them in, in this book, in which people realised they were no longer in love with their partners. And strange things can happen in that, that, that experience in which someone's asking the questions and, and someone's answering. Sometimes, it's often happened with the wealthier people, with the, the weightless, floating children of Mayfair and Knightsbridge. They don't, people think that the interview's a bit like a play, 
and that they're supposed to play some sort of role, that there's a right answer and a, and a wrong answer, and often they go, what's the right answer? What should I say? To which I go, well, you can just say whatever you want. This, uh, it's not a, we're not doing like a, a glam shot or a photo shoot. So all of the people in this book are different. All the people in London are different, and that's, uh, that's, one of the, that's kind of the message here. Okay, gentleman over there, man over there, and then a man here, yep. Sorry. Um, in terms of the, the poverty of the immigrants and in terms of the sort of the ghetto lifestyle of the immigrants, do you, do you really feel things have changed? I mean, I hear, I hear, you know, from my own experience, I hear Irish guys in their 60s and 70s talking as if they literally stepped off the boat, you know, and they're still talking in those accents. So I wonder really has that much changed for, for immigrants in London? Okay, let's take another one while you think about the answer to that. There's a man here. Yeah, white T-shirt. Hi. Um, We've spoken a lot about the different views of the various groups of immigrants uh, towards each other, Um, but I was wondering if you could say something about the views of different groups of immigrants, first wave or second wave, um, about the ideas of either assimilation or wishing that the country that they had arrived in was more understanding and accepting of what they did in their day-to-day lives, and whether... um, these groups wanted to be taken more on their own terms or whether they wanted to be seen as making an effort to acclimatise to various aspects of British, in inverted commas, culture. Thanks. Okay. Just to jump on that question, All right. one, of the, one of the really, really fascinating things about, about this project was most people in the immigrant London of low pay or of medium, of medium pay experience each other, but they have a very di- often quite a distant or limited experience of the, uh, the established uh, sort of traditional English. And in, in, in jobs which are migrant jobs such as cleaning or, con- cleaning or construction, they are often guessing about the, who, what the English are really about by these experiences uh, that they have of sort of work of working for them and never being able to have a conversation with them, one of the a lot of it is uncomfortable. I was you're often asked why why are they so bad with money? Why do they buy ten pound lunch? Why are they so stupid? Why do they make it at home? What, what, what's wrong with them? You often get uh, in the poorer outer suburbs. What's wrong with the poor English? Why are they so sick? Why are they drinking the whole time? What's wrong with them? Are they, are they dying? Is there, something, is there something happening to them? That's uncomfortable to hear. You hear a lot of views about, oh, you've got to understand, Eastern Europe. one of the fears that Eastern Europeans have is that the English love only their colonials and that people from Africa or Asia or, or, or the Caribbean are part of some sort of story that's going back centuries that, that they'll never be part of. So you can just hate them in the tabloids, free and uninhibited every day. That's one of their, their, that's one of their fears. Um, people are often baffled by, by manners. Uh, people are baffled by manners, and people are... One of the, the biggest impressions of, uh, of the English is they're lazy, and that they're lazy and that they strangely have lost basic craft skills, how to hammer, how to fix... And there's a sense of amazement that there's, they're, not interest, they're not interested in, in, in knowing how to do things, uh, knowing how to do things for themselves. I did, some of this under, I did some of this undercover. When I was living in Doss houses, I would tell people that I was a, I speak Russian, I would tell them I was a Russian 
asylum seeker. I didn't have my papers right. I was just that's why I was here. I was trying to get things trying to get things uh, right for me. And I was repeatedly told by the friends that I made there that you must understand you don't get it because you're Russian. That this is the country of rights. They have rights. None of us get it at first, but there are rights here. And if you tell them, oh, it's a, I don't want to fight for Putin, I don't want to die in Ukraine, they will go, welcome, thank you very much. You know, here is the documents that you need. And there is this, this amazing respect for rights and what that protects in London, what makes London glow to the rest of the world, which is that possibility of transformation, that you can change who you are and that you can be with whoever you want. I can't stress how if you spend days and days and days and nights and nights and nights with tube cleaners who are living in cramped tenements in outer London, double shifts, the fact that you want to kiss a man, you can kiss a man. You want to kiss somebody black, white, Asian, go for it, nobody cares. That often makes it all okay. And I think that our the traditional kind of British awkwardness makes us, makes us miss what's happening here. Okay, question about the um, poverty of immigrants and the, uh, the long-term the, uh, the view as reported of the Irish. One of the... The two interesting things about the Irish story, one is that how that story of a minority is increasingly becoming the story of a majority in London. There's a lot of it still... There's not, that much of a, there's not that much of a difference between the experiences of Irish construction workers and Polish construction workers, but there are two crucial differences. One is there are much less English in, in London, and the other is the distance, often by language. And w on Eastern European construction sites, one of the things that's most fascinating is that men are working together Everyone speaks Polish, everyone speaks Romanian, everyone speaks Russian. Don't really learn English. So the dream home in the head, it's actually back there. It's back there. Hope it's going to happen. People are taking pictures of things they've done nicely in uh, mansions they're working on. People are sort of endlessly calculating the exchange rate between pounds and, uh, and zlotys and what they'll be able to get back home. But women are working client-facing jobs. They're serving, waitressing, cleaning, and they're learning English. And as they learn more and more English, they realise more of the, the great things about being here, which is it's better to be a woman here than it is in Warsaw, or it is in Riga, or it is in, it is in Bucharest. The guys who I work with on these construction sites, they're desperate for a girlfriend, so they didn't have to share a bed with a, with a bloke. They were desperate, to, but they had a lot of problems First was is that they were paid much less, seven pounds, eight pounds, nine pounds an hour if they had a trade, nine pounds an hour. The ladies were earning ten, fifteen pounds an hour, doing much better than them. So it was very difficult to afford the cocktails. They thought it was a, a losing game. And the, this, I, I saw this happen a few times to people on the, the sites that the Polish dream house, the Romanian dream house, would slip out of sight when the girlfriend got pregnant, and all the people she knew through her English could be the rich lady that doesn't really need any cleaning, that cleans more of an entertainment, that comes and does dusting. It could be the girls at uh, Pret-a-Manger would go, don't go back to Poland. Stay here. It's better for the kid. 
and there was a lot of heartbreak for Eastern European guys, they would often feel that they were, they often felt that they trapped in the world without English. And there was so much resentment with them that they, why hadn't they learnt it? Why, why hadn't they done it at school? Why was there Russian at school? Why well, was not fair? That the women were enjoying a far freer experience and they were mixing more. And there was a lot of anger, a lot of anger with African men or black Caribbean men or Muslim men, that they were picking up the girls. And there was a lot of, uh, uh, there was sometimes, you know, sort of venom that would, would trickle in there because one of the things I really found, that's coming back to the Irish, is that language is everything. And I think that the hate and the persecution and the police beat-ups of Irish in Kilburn or Shepherd's Bush 30 years ago, I think mean, that is actually a bit larger than what you get to most minority groups in London. But they did have English. They were part, they could communicate like that. And I don't think the pain of not having the words is, an, is a, a huge part of the story of London, and struggling to find them and sets a thrill uh, when you find them. I think one of the main stories of this book is this collision between the dream of London as seen from afar, glassy towers, the idea that when you get here, you've got a shot at being rich, the idea that London is a city where everyone is rich, the city of rights, the city of free school, free health, you know, concentrate on the things you like, maybe do some painting in the evening if that's what, what you're into. And the reality is the sad reality, and what was a lot of the sadness of this book was mostly migrants arrive and they clean and they guard and they build the golden city. They never really enter. And it's going to be very interesting to see in the generations ahead whether that frustrating experience, what will that mean? OK, Let's, let's, we've got a question from up there, it's and then there's a woman down here, yeah, a lady down here. Sorry? It's actually just answered. You've just answered it, okay. Well, I was, I was hoping for a question from that, okay. Lady down here, yep. Can we have a, a microphone? Mic no, here. No, here. Lady here. Oh, as, oh. So I can come later, I promise, oh, the next okay. step, but I did promise them in order. Lady here, at the front. Yeah, then we'll go over there next. Yeah. Uh, property prices, are the English or the Americans or what nationality sort of at the top? And will it continue so? I think the dark secret of London, and something I'm... The dark secret of London is that you can buy a house without revealing who you are. You can buy property anonymously. And this means that the currency of London is dusty Victorian brick, the clay that kind of crumbles at the touch. And the reason, one of the reasons that this is a currency of speculation is that if you, are, if you have stolen funds or you have illicit funds in some of the more lawless countries uh, in, in the world, you can set up an anonymous company in an offshore jurisdiction and then you can buy property in London, anonymously. No one needs to know who you are. And when you've done that, your dirty, dirty black cash becomes clean white cash, and then you can, you can use it. Then you can like, buy the sports car, then you can buy other things, you can buy jewels, you can buy dinners, and you don't have to worry about people going, 
what's all these bags of, uh, bags of cash? And there has been a deliberate refusal by the government here and by the teams uh, around various prime ministers to acknowledge that problem out of a sense that uh, the country needs investment. And I think there's a very warped sense of who wins and who loses there. One of the, the, the nastier trends of the last 25 years is the old British establishment, the kind of the old British establishment, the kids from public school, increasingly becoming the valets to the super rich, becoming the art collectors, the property, the property dealers, the uh, lawyers, the bankers, to people with much more money from often really tyrannical regimes. And there's been, I think, a diminishing of values. There's been a diminishing of a sense of, uh, a sense of what's right and what's right and what's wrong. If you zoom out and you look at the big picture internationally, there's a looting machine that goes on between poorer countries and richer countries. And from poorer countries, over a trillion uh, dollars leaves illicitly and is then laundered through richer countries every year. And that looting machine is not a machine, it's people. It's British bankers, it's uh, French lawyers, it's German accountants, and that's one of the dirty secrets of London, something I'm very angry about. And that speculation on property with really illicitly sourced funds is something I'm very angry about. When I was working in Eastern Europe, one of the stories that that most moved me was in Ukraine uh, over 1% of the population have HIV AIDS and amongst people of our generation and the younger generation the infection rate is much higher and that's approaching a kind of sub-Saharan African level of breakout. But Ukraine's a big country, it's a big country, there's money there. There was enough money for the president to steal 40 billion from Ukraine's, uh, uh, from Ukraine's budget before he was overthrown just over a uh, over a year ago. So I went out to find out what's ha- what happened to this budget. And I was furious, sad, angry when it was revealed to me that the HIV AIDS and the TB budget of Ukraine had been stolen and laundered through shell companies and then via British, uh, British property and especially London property. You wouldn't buy a blood diamond, you wouldn't sell a blood diamond and Lots of, uh, of uh, the Victorian bricks in our, in our city have become blood mansions. I mean, there's a, lack of a, there's a lack of awareness of that. And that's something I think is very important to change. Right. And the poor person I stopped over there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't worry about it. To be fair. Um, hi. I have a question about your method... Methodolo- Methodology. That's oh. the word. Can't say it. <laughs> um, so I know that you spoke a bit about how you brought the... Sure. Um, reporter method to your book Um, to me it sounds also like you did a little bit of sort of anthropological methodology there um, in that you stayed with people and you kind of assimilated into their worlds for a while Um, I guess I wanted to ask how you chose who it was that you stayed with and spoke to um, and also I guess one thing that I noticed from the kind of people that you were describing is yes. that you missed out two um, groups of sort of that are very prominent in my life in terms of immigration groups. So the first being um, second-generation immigrants. You didn't really, maybe you did, but you didn't speak about it so far. And then also um, people who are immigrants with a certain level of education from back home that come here to um, do 
qualified jobs, but not at the level that they could potentially do. So sure. that's lots of people I work with. Just on with the, the first that. point there yeah, about... Sure. This book's about the people who don't want to speak, the super rich, the people who don't have a voice, people who are second or third generation immigrants. I mean, they've got a voice. I think they're... Perhaps not as loud as... But I think the question was, the people you did talk to, what was their view about the previous generation of immigrants? I think, was that your question? It was that one, sorry. My mistake, sorry. I don't talk about it. And that's what this book is about. It's about getting those kind of voices heard. Uh, There are people with education levels, excellent education levels from back home, who tell their story? Who tell their stories? Uh, tell, tell their stories in this book, and it's very painful for people to, if they've come with university degrees, or they've come, or they've come being eloquent, fluent writers in a language there that's not used here. And one of the things that I, just because I write, just because I, I talk, and that's what I do for a living, it was really painful to hear people who were writers in Bengali and who'd come here and couldn't get a job that wasn't a manual job. They just didn't have, didn't have the words. And that kind of frustration, you know, once I started to, learn, started to be able to read faces and started to be able to work out who the people were around me again, having done so many interviews, that frustration, I think, is one of the stories uh, of London. In terms of methodology, um. I like to go about things like in, sort of, in defiance of sort of terms, terms like that. But one of the things I can say is you can't interview somebody in 15 minutes. You've got to spend as long as you physically can with them. You've got to spend hours and hours and hours. You can spend days. Uh, and one of the great things about being a writer and writing books is that, is that you can do that. And to really work out like, all of the doubts and fears and hopes and you know, all of these cross-hatchets that are going on in people's heads. It really takes time. One of the chapters in, in this that I'm most, I'm most proud of is the story of hospital carers. Over 60% of the carers in London are migrants. They do one of the toughest jobs you can think of, which is helping the English die. And they wipe them, they clean them, they're, 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 they're doing the work. The family members are just holding hands or, or, or fretting or having a bit of emotional connection. They're not working there. And towards the end of the arc of life in this book, one of the chapters is their story and their, their feelings. And during these days that I, I spent with these, with, with these carers... At first, they talked in very blasé terms about the, neat, the toileting and the hoisting and uh, the little bits of cleaning they had to do. But by the end of it, all these various levels of defence that they built against the harshness of their, their job really began to break down. And that was very moving to, to see what a, what a painful job that was. And they began to share their, often their spiritual uh, uh, feelings about being carers, about having seen so many people die, having wrapped so many people and sent them off to the mortuary, what it's like to be often the last person someone sees and 
gestures to before the snuff is gone so many times. And I thought that, that story sort of captured a lot of what this project was about, because it's about these... This book is about the people that we see but we don't hear. And I, to come back, there might be a fancy kind of philosophical term for this, but I don't think we see with our eyes. I think we see with the ideas that are in our heads. And that people that aren't storied, people that don't have... People who haven't been kind of introduced, it's very difficult to see them. And that you need to read and kind of be able to name things or work out what things are in order to be able to really see and connect them. And what I, I hope that, once you've read this book, you'll never be able to look at a carer in the same way again and not think what that life is like day in, day out, day in, day out. What's going through their head? How, what are they thinking about, uh, uh, about what they're doing? And not view them as a sort of machine or as some kind of expendable person. Right. Uh, woman there, and still a hand up there, right, and one here. So take those two. Yep. Um, hi. First of all, I want to say that I think the um, well, the subject of your book is not only really interesting but also really useful. Oh, just thank based you. <laughs> no, but it's true. Just based on my well, my limited experience, um, I just think that generally people, and especially in London, um, tend to create bubbles. And I think once you reach a certain social, economical, or professional status, it's very easy to forget about the rest of the people. So I think this is a very good reminder, or it can be a very good reminder. Um, but I was wondering, in terms of, um, you mentioned earlier when you were um, in interviewing people or you were talking to them, and they were sort of almost expecting a play, so almost like a predefined answer or a predefined um, response. Um, and I was wondering, if you addressed at all the, the sort of predefined narrative that exists in terms of an immigration and how that sort of influences someone's um, evolution in, in the UK. Just to give an example, maybe uh, to better illustrate what I'm trying to say, the term immigration itself, it has reached this point today that it has a negative connotation by itself which I think, personally, I think it's a shame. And especially when you compare that, so calling someone immigrant, so someone from Romania, someone from Lithuania, someone from Nigeria, someone from Syria, they're an immigrant. Whereas someone from the UK or someone from the US, they're an expat. This term itself, so being an expat, as in my experience and in my interaction, it, it hasn't had the sort of negative connotation that being an immigrant is, even though in reality and in practice, it's the same status, or it should be the same status. Uh, I'll read actually a little bit from the book, because one of the, okay, well, yeah, one of the people I profiled in the book had cottoned on to this, that uh, the horrible culture of euphemism, and he had created a dictionary to, to sort of help people with these terms. So the first term, he... This chap who created a dictionary for people who were coming from Nigeria. And his first, his first key phrase in the list of euphemisms was urban people, black. Inner city people, blacks. North London intellectual, Jew. Devout Muslim, practically fundamentalist. <laughs> Practicing Jew, barely English. 
migrant, poor immigrant, expat, rich immigrant, <laughs> ultra high net worth individual, oligarch, vibrant multicultural era, area, ethnic ghetto, hard working people, the poor, and disadvantaged people, that means you're fucking impoverished. Uh, one of the really interesting things, if you do this kind of project, you get to interview hundreds and hundreds of people, is you, there are two things that, that you, you're stuck with. One is that intelligence is random. It's kind of an obvious thing to say, but it's really scary when you realise it, that intelligence is randomly distributed. And some of the smartest people, really clued up, some of the most charismatic, eloquent people were working the toughest jobs. Some of the dumbest people were enjoying the... were languishing in riches. The other thing that I was really struck with is that the storytelling ability is random and the ability to express yourself, to tell a story. And as I was going on this, this journey round and round and round and round, zone 8 to zone 1, I realised that what I was looking for were storytellers, people who could situate their life in the lives of others, their moments, and say what they meant. The fact, just think through that. Intelligence and storytelling ability, completely random. And if you believe that, like, like I do, that's to give you a policy recommendation. That makes you very committed to, as much as is, possi uh, as much as is possible, the, uh, the meritocratic principle and the equality of opportunity. Okay, now, just to tell you where we're going. I'm going to take a question. Somebody's got a microphone back there. I was rather pointing vaguely, but woman there. Uh, it's about quarter to eight, so I'm going to take kind of questions till about five to eight, just sort of just short of eight o'clock. So I'll take, yeah. There, there Hi, my name's Malika, and I'm from London. Um, it's a really interesting book, but one of the things I was curious about was the backgrounds um, and the patterns of migration of the people you interviewed. So was it often as much as it's far as far as it's possible to generalise, people who'd come from rural backgrounds due to a decline in agricultural livelihoods or people who'd moved from capital cities or moved and tried it in their own capital cities and then tried to come to London? OK, let's just take the man just behind who had his hand up as well. Was a gentleman, you had your hand up, I think? Yep. And then we'll do these two and then we'll do a couple over here. Uh, you touched um, in your talk a bit about... Um, what people actually earn and the black economy in essence and, and by implication I assume you're talking about people earning less than the minimum wage so firstly there's the, the actual compliance with mi mi uh, minimum wage uh, you may be aware that there's very tight anti-money laundering rules in this country also in some local authorities there are landlord licensing so I, I wondered if you'd had time to reflect on what would appear to be the, the failure to enforce the rule of law in major areas of the economy. Just to answer the policy, quickly. I made a film called From Russia with Cash. I was a creative consultant on it for Channel 4. And there's... What we did is we got an activist, uh, a guy from the Russian opposition, to go into various mansions in London and go, hello, I'm a crook, I've stolen all this money from the Russian health budget, will you sell me this house? Under British law... It's the moment you suspect money laundering, you should report the guy immediately. None of the estate agents did. They all told him, lovely bit of secret camera work there, 
We've done this so many times before, so many clients all over the world. Don't worry, got a good lawyer for you. Just create a shell company. And with, obviously, like not paying somebody minimum wage is against the law. But when a law's not enforced, it's not always real. on the question of uh, people's backgrounds. We'll just start flicking through, through here. You've got the very centre of someone from, from the very centre of Moscow, someone from rural Nigeria, someone from the capital, someone from the capital of Ghana, someone from rural Pakistan. There's a whole mix of uh, uh, a whole mix of backgrounds there. The thing that really hit me, though, was that. The one thing you can generalise on about people who are willing to make that journey, make that journey to the glowing city, is you have to be a bit of a dreamer, and you have to be a bit of a chancer, you have to be willing to take risks, and that all of these, these voices, they all began in that, that way, that willingness, to get up and, that willingness to get up and go and to take a chance, and this sense that they psychologically or personally... They had a little bit more of something than the people who were, had stayed behind in the glittering but unsafe palaces of Moscow or sort of picking f- uh, vegetables in uh, rural Afghanistan. Right. Now, Chuck there with the beers uh, over here. Sorry to keep, make you run backwards and forwards across the room. Yeah. And one other... Um, you highlighted many, obviously, negative issues, which I'm, no doubt is happening all across London all the time. I wondered if you could talk about the sort of more positive aspects, whether the people were glad to be here and it, it sort of it, um, overall their life was better. Did you have positive stories that you found? Um, I found a lot lesser than I expected. Surprised me. But then maybe you shouldn't be surprised that people who are on low pay are unhappy um, or tired or feel that sense of struggle. Uh, the younger people were, I found the happier they were. There's that sense of promise, a sense of expectation, sense of transformation. Just one little anecdote which I think will we'll sort of capture it is I hung out with some tube pickers, you know, the sticks picking, in the, the, tube, in the underground. The younger guy reads the Evening Standard every time. He flicks for it, checking out the houses, and he wants to, to know what's in it. He comes from Ghana. He thinks that he wants to find out what he and his children could become. That's why he's, he's, he's reading the newspaper. The older guy doesn't want to see it. Get it out of my sight. He's trash. Picks them all up with a fury, throws them away, because he'll never become that. And he'd calculated one day that he would have to work for kind of double his lifespan in order to be able to buy uh, a council flat in White City. And I think age has got to, uh, a, lot to do, a lot to do with it. In terms of positive stories, most people don't transform in London, and as they realise that, that's painful. But most people fall in love in London. And that's got nothing to do with whether you buy the house or you don't buy the house. And on that arc of life, in that sort of early middle period where that was happening, that was very beautiful to interview people about that huge sense of freedom and the, the sense of the, and that huge sense of freedom 
that they found. I found that the, the most troubled were those, and ethnicity, doesn't re, ethnicity was kind of a subsidiary to this, it wasn't the main thing, was people raising kids. A lot of tension about where these kids were growing up, a lot of confusion about what this place would look like, a lot of nerves about often half-understood things or rumoured things that, again, weren't reported or properly analysed, like gangs, very unsure. A lot of sense, a lot of stuff wasn't in, in the papers that was happening. And uh, attention, about, uh, attention about where exactly those, uh, those kids would be growing up into. I found, especially with African families, there was a lot of fear that there was some kind of racial barrier in this country that's slight, but that's still there, that was stopping people. And that attention, a, a real worry that they didn't have the power or didn't have the voice to really sort of break, to break through that. And I, I came away feeling that there's a lot too much kind of uh, Olympic uh, backslapping by sort of, you know, sort of elderly, sort of elderly establishment men here, and a lot, not enough kind of uh, looking kind of firm in the eye, really listening to what people's fears are. Do you think, I mean, I know this isn't a policy book, but you must have, having thought about it in this way, written about it, taken all these views, did, did you get the, I mean, is it your view now that, there's two, this isn't quite a spectrum, that somehow the rate of recent migration was too fast? Or that London hasn't properly and appropriately and fairly adapted to it, given it wasn't too fast? Well, well London's just like a place, you know, in a market. And London's not like a group of people that have a set of ideas. Well, obviously. but London, it, it's more than that, though, because it has an implied culture, doesn't it? It has a... Uh, it's an old city, it's 2,000 years old, so it must have a, you know, an implied collective sense of what it is. So, anyway, just, but I mean, did, did you get a sense that some of the issues you've drawn out tonight came about because this, the speed of change, the scale, the, the scale and speed, or was it simply that somehow we were that the, we the people, or we the government, or they the government, were not, were not appropriately and properly ready for it? Or is it just, an art, it's just, just a thing? Well, I don't think you can control immigration. At all? Uh, I think you can... I mean, in eras of massive movement, looking back at history and looking at what's going on on the, the continent, you can try and limit it, you can try and okay. control it, you can't stop it. And I think that there's too much of a false conversation here of people promising what they can't deliver to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands. Well, I think you can... I, don't, I think the immigration will continue at a very high rate for the next few decades. And I don't think any government, unless they're really willing to break with liberal values, which I don't think they are, uh, or they're really willing to dismantle opportunity, to dismantle universities, to dismantle NH the, NH the way the NHS functions, very reliant on recruitment from abroad. So I don't think that's going to happen. What you can talk about a lot more is integration. I think you do have a lot more scope there to make demands, to kind of shape what things are going to look like. Make demands, on, make demands on whom? I mean, who, who are the demands to be made on? The well, states, and people... No, but, but who, who has to do what? Everyone. 
But everyone, well, everyone's a bit fake, you know, but everyone has to do, you need to know what they need, what, what, do they, what would everyone need to do? One of the things that surprised me was the willingness amongst the people that I profiled and interviewed for, you could say, a liberal push to make sure people speak English. Mm-hmm. And a real sense that if you don't speak English, you're really suffering and people need to be helped to, to learn English. And they need to be forced to learn English. And in places where women are sort of just at home, they need to be pushed so that she gets a chance to learn English too. Another thing that really comes out of there was I met so many, I spent so much time with really frustrated people that said they couldn't afford to learn English. And I I think that sort of passes us by. We don't realise that you've got to go to classes. The classes cost. If you want a teacher that's going to teach you more than like very broken phrase it's going to cost quite a lot you need to not work a job that evening I don't think that the ruling powers or the ruling dominant cultures anticipated the pace of change I still don't think they really understand what's happened and I think there needs to be a kind of people need to sort of wake up and uh, wake up and really start rethinking where they are. I think a lot of it's got to do with a frozen and fossilised image of London. Like just watching EastEnders is a really sort of creepy experience. Really weird. Like, but that's not what Newham looks like. I don't know. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> it's a good note to end, as they say. Uh, I mean, just to, you know, I mean, the, the point of my question was that I, you know, my own, what it's worth, I've long thought that, I mean, the, the, the UK government controls, insofar as it has policy, the borders, but all the issues you're describing are local. And, you know, local politics has never really been given the uh, wherewithal and indeed the empowerment to act quickly and fast enough. That, that I think, is sort of what I, if I can answer the question I asked myself. I mean, uh, one of the gaps I had is I wrote this book... I'm and rather sympathetic the to the point. I wrote this book, I spent a lot of time in these days, and then I covered the election. I'm not going to name any specific MPs because I'm not, I'm not interested in that. But I was pretty shocked about how little they knew about their constituencies. And when I told them, do you know that there's no black market labour exchange there? Really? Really? Do you know that there's uh, street prostitution going, what, 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 what? And it... It would really do them some good to, to kind of search, search more and to really sort of root out into to dark corners. And I think there's a sort of laziness. I understand if you become an MP in a safe Labour or Conservative seat, easy job. You don't have to worry about the reselection or whatever. You can just you know, spend time in, your, you know, in the House, go back occasionally to the very reliant group. And I think there needs to be a lot more curiosity from the political class willingness to ask questions and not to think they know everything okay well look uh, look it's been a fascinating um, look at an issue in a way we an issue many of the, everybody in the room i'm sure is interested in but not often viewed in this way and certainly not giving so many voices that are not normally given a voice a voice and that, some of it's kind of shocking and some of it's very rich and it's certainly going to further uh, improve the debate about the issue is what modern London is. Now, before I ask for a round of applause and wish you all good night, there is a strategically located table just outside with piles of books on it. Should you wish to 
learn more about this evening and indeed the author and uh, the work, uh, you can pick one up there. And I'm sure if you'd like one, Ben will wait here and sign them, should you wish, afterwards. So feel free to do that. But other than that, I'd just like to thank Ben and I'd like to thank all of you for all your excellent questions. Thank you for coming. Good night.